bring this sucker down. How's that? Can you hear me? It works out since I can sit down. And I'm not being lazy, I promise. I'll be back on my feet before long. Um, but anyway, just I'm, I'm grateful for how generous our church is. We, every time we ask you to give, you give, and it blows my mind. And we never want to take advantage of that. We don't take love offerings often, but when there's a need that arises that we need uh, help beyond what the church can do um, through our budget, we, we ask that you give. And you always step up. And I don't want us to ever change that. I don't want us to be a church that holds our money like it's our kingdom, right? When people have a need, I want us to meet it. And you're going to see it's really going to fit well into our sermon this morning. Um, Before we jump into Matthew chapter 24, that's your cue to get your Bibles to Matthew 24, uh, I want to make another announcement. Maybe this is more of of an apology slash announcement. Um, May was supposed to be a month that we as a church focused on prayer. May we pray. It was a very clever slogan. The problem is we're almost through June. We're halfway through June, okay? We missed May. (laughs) I don't know where May went, and I don't really know where the first part of June is gone. But we cannot miss this opportunity. Um, There is a book that many of you ordered called The Praying Church, A Praying Church. And you've started reading it with me. You're like, are we going to get together and talk about it? My intentions were good. My intentions were pure. But again, time just got away from us. And so we are going to put a midweek into place for the summer session. We usually don't meet midweek throughout the summer, but I want to do it because this is a book that we need to go through. It's a prayer. It's a book on prayer. And it's not just about a, a book on individual prayer. It's, it's a book on corporate prayer. Listen, there is nothing that the church should be better at than praying as a church, we've got to be a prayer. Thank you for giving. We're, don't ever stop being a giving church. But if we're a giving church and we're not a praying church, we've missed the mark. Right? We've got to be a praying church. The presence of God will meet us in our prayers. And I want this community to know that, yeah, we're a giving church, but also we're a praying church. They can come to us with their needs, and we will, we will lift them to the throne room of heaven. And so it's a book. It's called A Praying Church. We're going to start this series. I don't have the dates, and we didn't put a slide up, I'm sure. Uh, but it's coming. We're going to give you about a two-week notice. Uh, we're going to do it just like we do every midweek. We're going to do a kickoff with a, with a meal, and um, that night will just be food. We'll supply the food. If you want to donate towards that, your meal, that's fine. If not, that's fine. And then um, I'll kick it off with a devotion that night on prayer, and then we're going to read this book together for five weeks after. So it's six weeks in total. We don't want to take all your summer. Uh, and we'll be meeting on Wednesday nights right here at the church, okay? Again, a couple weeks' notice. looks like it's going to kick off July 12th, and then it'll go all the way through August 16th, okay? So please put that in your calendars. If you haven't ordered that book, you can order it on your own. Also, there's a way later on today on our group page, there's going to be a sign-up, okay? We're getting more techie around here. And so we want you to sign up for this so we'll know how many to prepare for food-wise. You're on your own with the book. Just go on Amazon, order it. It's not that expensive. Also, in the bulletin or in the coffee room on the bulletin board, there's a QR code that you can uh, click to also register if you don't want to wait for a link, okay? All right. Praying church. It'll be a good conversation. If you can make them, great. If you can make all of them, wonderful. If you can only make two out of the five, that's fine, too. We want you to come and be a part of the conversation. And we're going to do some praying, by the way. We're not just going to talk about prayer. We're going to be doing some praying together as a church. Now, if you haven't found Matthew chapter 24 yet, you're in trouble, okay? Matthew 24. And uh, listen, I just want to say this. By the time we get to Matthew's account of Jesus' ministry here in chapters 24 and 25, 
Jesus is already in Jerusalem. We know that. Uh, He is nearing the end of his ministry. His time here on earth is coming to a close. The the cross is approaching. We know that. It's coming. Uh, And so his conversation about what happens after life on earth seems to be increasing as his time on earth is coming to an end. And that's probably what happens. When when death becomes more of a reality to us, heaven's probably going to become more of a conversation or a thought to us. And so Jesus is expressing more and more of what the kingdom of God is like, what heaven is like. For weeks now, we have been, we've been reminded that heaven is a real place being re- prepared by a real God uh, right now for the real children of God, those who are the true sons and daughters of God. We know this, heaven is more than we deserve. None of us have earned heaven. It's more than we can imagine, and it's worth the wait. That's what we've been talking about. Heaven's going to be glorious. The natural question that the church wants to ask is, how long must we wait, right? When is Jesus coming back? And that's essentially the same question that the disciples are going to ask in our text today. But I would say by the end of chapter 25, Jesus makes it very clear to us that when he is coming back is not as important of a question as what should we be doing while we wait for him to come back. And that's what we want to tackle today. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1 and 2. As Jesus was leaving the temple ground, so they've been in Jerusalem and now they're leaving, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. I can just imagine them looking back as I was looking at the mountains this past week in Albuquerque. Every time we'd like, Andy, look. She goes, yeah, they're mountains. I'm like, no, those are amazing, right? And she was tired of me. Just, there'd be times i just park in a parking lot and go, I'm just going to stand here and stare for a while, right? And I'm sure that's kind of what the disciples were doing as they're leaving and they're looking at the majestic buildings of the temple. They're like, look, Master, at how marvelous the, the temple appears from this view. It's, it's so breathtaking. And in verse 2, Jesus responds. He says, do you see all these buildings? Of course we see all the buildings. That's why we just said, look, Jesus, at the buildings. And here's what he says. I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one will stand, not one stone will be left on top of another. And this prediction would certainly come to pass. There is no temple in Jerusalem today. There's, there is a wall, but the temple is gone because Rome destroyed the temple in AD 70, right? We know that if you know any biblical history at all. Verse 3 says this, later, okay, the, They're now moved on. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will all of this happen? So they're still hung up on what Jesus said as they were leaving Jerusalem. They haven't been able to get it out of their mind because the temple was the sacred place of God. It was God's dwelling place among his people, the Jews. And they're like, they're probably, what do you mean, Jesus, it's going to be destroyed? Not again, right? certainly not going to happen again. You're, you're here, Lord. You're our Messiah. You're, you're going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. You're going to make everything right again from the temple in Jerusalem. And he continues in verse 3. Uh, the disciples do. What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? The disciples probably wasn't expecting Jesus to leave at all. They certainly hadn't wrapped their heads around the idea that he was going to die and leave them. But notice the question, when will all of this happen? What sign will there be of your return? 
And the rest of chapter 24 and chapter 25 is Jesus' response to those questions. There's at least six signs that Jesus gives here in his response. I'm going to hurry through these signs because I don't want us to miss them, but it's not the point of our sermon today. So really quick, six signs of uh, Christ's return. Number one, deception. Look at verse 4. Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Look at verse 11. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Verse 24. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you about this ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, look, the Messiah is out in the desert, don't bother to go look. Or look, he is hiding here. Don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. There will be no misunderstanding in Christ's second return. The first time he came as a humble lamb, as a, as a humble servant to die for the sins of the world. And there were many questioning, are you the Messiah? There will be no one questioning the second time. He's not coming as a lamb, he's coming as a roaring lion for his church. Of course, deception here is nothing new. It's been around since the Garden of Eden. But the deception is going to intensify in the last days even with the coming of the Antichrist, which I believe um, Jesus warns us of in verse 24. But look at Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2 through 4. It says this, Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them, even if they claim to have a spiritual vision or a revelation or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say. For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself. He, himself. he will defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. So the first sign is there's going to be deception, and even greater deception. So church, we got to be in the word. we got to be in tune to the spirit of God and walk in step with him, because there's going to be many trying to deceive you. Number two is tribulation. Look at verse 7. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is, the, is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. Sin will be rampant everywhere. And the love of many will grow cold. Verse 21, for there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. And it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive, but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. Daniel 12, 1 predicts that this time of greater anguish, uh, it will be greater anguish than anything the world has ever seen or will ever see again. The third sign is devastation. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then at last the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning 
among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Revelation speaks in great detail about this devastation, particularly if you want to read more in Revelations 8 and 9 and chapter 16. The fourth sign is proclamation. In verse 14, Jesus says this, And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world, so that all the nations will hear it, and then the end will come. Notice the, pro- the, the progression there. The gospel will be spread to the uttermost parts of the earth, and then Christ will come. Number five, um, abomination. Look at verse 15. The day is coming when, when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down to the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women or for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. And again, Daniel makes references of this. Uh, Paul is, I I believe, alluding to this in 2 Thessalonians that we just read. The sixth one is this, salvation. In verse 22, in fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive, but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. Things will get so bad that if God doesn't intervene, everyone will die, but God will intervene. God is in control of the severity and the length of persecution. He never forgets his people. This is all we need to know about the the future, to give us hope and to motivate us to live for God with reckless abandonment. Certainly, or let me say this, uncertainty breeds, it naturally breeds fear. When we don't know, what we don't know scares us, right? And so naturally, uncertainty breeds fear. But I am encouraging all of us today in the word of the Lord to lean into the sovereignty of our Lord and reject every temptation to live by fear. Because no matter how dark the present, our future is sure and our future is secure and our future is heaven and heaven is unshakable. Look at verse 30. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. There's never been anything like this. We've never experienced anything like this, and the world will never experience anything like this again. From this one moment, there will be such great mourning, while others, it will be such great delight. And the reaction will all depend on what side of salvation you are on. Verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a mighty blast of the trumpet, and they will gather his chosen chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now, learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these signs that Jesus just mentioned, when you see all of these things, You can know his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all things, all these things take place. Verse 35, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself, only the Father 
knows. Now, it is not my intention to make an, um, an eschatology take any kind of stance with eschatology this morning. Uh, that's not the purpose. Uh, I don't believe that this is a study of the end times. I don't believe it's even the point of the passage. The goal of this text is not to study the signs of the end times so you can pinpoint the second coming of Christ because no one knows. So what is the point of the text? Well, I think the point, the whole point of chapter 24 and 25 can be summed up in two words. Be ready. Be ready. Look at verse 37. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered the boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man returns. When the Son of Man comes, two men will be working in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. So you too must keep watch. For you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this. If Jesus says understand this, we should understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be what? You also must be ready all the time. For the Son of Man will come when least expected. So don't study the signs and pinpoint a date of Christ's return because you will be wrong. <laughs> no one knows. Instead, just be ready for his coming. We are to ready ourselves while waiting expectantly. So how do we ready ourselves? Well, he tells us, I think, in the rest of the chapter, verse 45. A faithful, sensible servant... This is what he says right after he says, be ready. A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. And if the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant is evil? And thinks my master won't be back for a while. And he, he begins beating the other servants. And he's partying it up. And he's getting drunk. And, and then the master will return. And he, he's going to return unannounced and unexpected. And he's going to cut the servant into pieces. Now, that's probably not literally going to happen. But I can tell you, when unholiness comes into the presence of holiness, you're going to wish you were cut into pieces. And you're going to be placed into a place of... Uh, in, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus seems to suggest that our focus should be on serving others, not reading the signs of the times. And, and, and I think he really makes that point in chapter 25. And you're like, Pastor, are you really going there? Yes, we're going there. In chapter 25, it says this. It says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like, he just shares these two parable stories. It'll be like 10 bridesmaids who, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take extra oil. And when the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they fell asleep. And at, at midnight, they were aroused by the shout, look, the bridegroom is coming. 
Come out and meet him. And all the bridesmaids got up and they prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for both you and us. Go shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy the oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was locked. And later when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. The end of that passage sounds very similar to Jesus in Matthew 7. I don't expect you to remember back to that passage in this series, but Jesus said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father will enter heaven. One judgment day, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name and we performed many miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Now, we're not gonna land here other than to say this parable teaches us the importance of being ready for the Lord's return. And how does it teach us that? It reminds us that not everyone will be ready for the Lord's return. We are not getting in to heaven with somebody else's oil. <laughs> we each must have our own oil. We each must have our own personal relationship with Jesus. Being born in America doesn't get you into heaven. Being born into a home with a Christian mom and dad does not get you into heaven, doesn't make you ready. You have to be ready by having a personal relationship where you have confessed Jesus as Lord of your life. And so maybe perhaps the most important question I could ask every single one of us in this room this morning is, are you ready? Are you ready? What a shame it would be as your pastor to just assume that all of us are ready, that we've all confessed, that we've all bent the knee and bent our hearts to Christ and confessed him as Lord of our lives. Are you ready? And then he shares another parable, verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants, and he entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. And then he left on his trip. The servant who received five bags of silver began to invest the money, and he earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and he called them to give an account of how they used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest and I have earned five more. And the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling the small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. And the servant who had received two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I've earned two more. And the master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this amount of this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. 
If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the point of this story. I'm going to give you about three lines and then we're moving on. Everything we have has been given to us by God to be used for God, his kingdom, and his glory. Everything we have has been entrusted to us by our heavenly Father. And the point here is this. Do something with what God has given you. Do something with what God has given you. Doing nothing of kingdom significance with our lives is not an option for the church. It's not an option for brothers and sisters in Christ. And then there's a third and final story, and this is where we're going to land. This is, this is it this morning. Look at verse 31. Here's what Jesus says. He's still answering the question from the disciples. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered into his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left, meaning God's going to separate those who follow Jesus to his right and those who don't follow Jesus to his left, to the believers to the right, unbelievers to the left. Verse 34. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you? Or where did, when did we see you thirsty and we gave you a drink? Or, or as a stranger and show you hospitality or, or naked and give you clothing? When, did you, when was you ever sick or in prison and we came to visit you? And, and, and by the way, he turns to the left and he, he has the same conversation with those on the left. In verse 41, he says, Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away, from, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me, and I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink, and I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't care for me or come visit me. And then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or as a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? Both groups here are confused <laughs> by what Jesus is going to say, and they're going to question him. The right's going to say, Lord, when did we serve you? And those on the left are going to say, Lord, when did we ever refuse to serve you? And in verse 40, in speaking to those on the right, he says, I tell you the truth, when you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. And then in verse 45, he turns to the left. He says, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. 
and the last verse I want to read today. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. And I believe this passage is spiritual gold for the church because Jesus gives us the answer to what we are to be doing while we wait for his return. Now, I chose, I've never preached two chapters before. That was 90-something verses, by the way. Good, you're caught up for a few days now if you haven't been reading your Bible. Uh, I never tell you guys ahead of time when I'm going to read a lot of the scriptures because I don't want to lose you, okay? But I I chose to present... Uh, chapters 24 and 25 together, not because I'm feeling the pressure of you guys telling me we need to get through this series, but mainly because um, I I wanted to give us a big picture of what's going on in these two chapters, and then I wanted to focus on just one practical implication for us. Because here's the deal. When we stand, when, when, all of us in this room, when we stand before our Lord and give an account of, for the lives that we have lived. He's not going to give us, Jesus will not give us a theological exam on the doctrine of eschatology. You're not going to stand before God and he's going to say, I need you to describe to me all of the events of the end times. He's not going to give us a Bible quiz on the key passages about the rapture or or the second coming. He's not going to give us, listen, Jesus is not going to give us a a blank sheet of paper and ask us to draw out end time charts with all the events in the right chronological order. (laughs) Rather, we will be evaluated based on how we served the least of them among us. Talking to the church, talking to those who have bent the knee in the heart to Jesus, We will give an account on how we served those around us. The hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. And Jesus somehow says that when we serve them, we are actually serving him. can't serve Jesus without serving them. And when we refuse to serve them, we are refusing to serve Christ. So the most important questions we need to answer, other than the question I've already asked, are you ready, are these questions. How are we serving the hungry and the thirsty among us? Maybe the first question is, who are the hungry and the thirsty among us? And how are we, individually maybe, but perhaps more corporately, how are we feeding them? How are we showing hospitality to the stranger? Who are the strangers in our lives? We need to identify them. And are we welcoming them as our Heavenly Father has welcomed us? Are we showing them hospitality as He has shown us? Are we clothing the naked and comforting the sick? Have we even identified who that is in our community, in our neighborhoods? Are we visiting the prisoners? And what does that even look like? How far should we go in serving them? How far should we go in serving the least of them among us? I'd ask I'd answer that by asking this question. How far 
did Jesus go in serving us? Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, Paul says, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. And not just any cross, your cross, my cross. He died for your sins and my sins. And so as we come to the end of our time together, our service here, we, we turn our attention to communion. Because communion reminds us that we are only doing for others, we are only being asked to do for others as Christ has first done for us. We were the least of them, church. We don't get to look down our nose at anybody because we were the ones at the very bottom, the least of the least. And Jesus stepped from the throne of heaven, wrapped himself in human flesh, and served you and he served me unto his death. We serve because we have been served. And served people serve people. So this is what we do as we wait. This is what it looks like to ready ourselves. We don't go fill our basement with canned soup and, and gallons of water and put a bike helmet on and, and shelter, shelter down in place. We see a sign, oh no, it's closed, and we don't run and hide. We run to serve until the day our Lord comes back, to the day he takes our last breath. We serve the least of them among us. And it's those that Jesus says will hear the words on the last day when we take our last breath here and our first breath in his presence. It's, it's those who serve with their lives, the least of them that will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We serve others while constantly reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us. Listen to me, we're gonna take communion this morning because here's, here's the truth of communion. We were the hungry and thirsty and he fed us. He satisfied us. We were the stranger, and he welcomed us in. We were the naked, and he clothed us in his righteousness. We were the imprisoned, and by his grace, he has set us free. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So I'm going to invite you to come to the Lord's table. We actually have tables, plural, three, one, two, and there's a tray in the back. And I just want you to get it, and I want you to go back to your seat, and we're going to take communion together this morning. But I want us all to do that together. You're, you're invited now to go get your communion.